Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and today we will be having a conversation with Tim Flannery. So if you are unaware of that uh, person's name, let me give you a few quick notes on who Tim is. Tim is well known to many of our listeners, and in fact, we have interviewed him before on Einstein and Gogo. He's a scientist, a conservationist, and a leading thinker on climate change. Tim is currently the Chief Counselor of the Climate Council here in Australia. He's held positions at Harvard University, Macquarie University, University of Melbourne, the Australian Museum, South Australian Museum, and the list goes on. Now, we last spoke to Tim after the release of his book, Atmosphere of Hope, and uh, I was interested when I got his most recent book to realize there were uh, some three books or so between those. So we've got a bit of catching up to do. Uh, Tim Flannery, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Shane. Great to meet you and see you again. It's, look, it's great to talk to you again. I, I know we've missed a couple of your books because you, you are a, a, a writing you know, speedster that I can't get my head around how quickly you get some of these books out and, and how well written they are. But your latest book that we're going to be talking about today is The Climate Cure, and I will hold this up to people because very unusual radio today. People can see us, which is a little scary for me. This is my my safe space in, in Triple R where no one can see what I, I get up to. But um, when did you start writing this particular book? Uh, look, I started writing it in um, January, actually, just about the time that the bushfires were starting to really take hold. Um, and it was it, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to need to produce it quickly or not, but with the COVID pandemic, I realised that there was a real opportunity to make a change, make a difference. Mm. So um, I pushed through and uh, got it done. It was the most difficult book I've ever had to write. I, I think it's probably the last one I'm going to write of that nature. Yeah. Uh, well, look, it's um, it's interesting because uh, as my partner often says to me, I, I rarely read and uh, I got through it relatively quickly, partly because of the uh, impending interview that I had to prepare for, but but also it was a book that I found very readable and and I have to say, having read it, you know, somewhat um, disturbing at some of the things that are in there, which I, I want to go through with you over this next hour. First of all, I'd like to start with just a bit of a discussion around the idea of tipping points, because this is something that we hear about a lot, but we don't really go into a lot of detail. And I know you, you go through some of these in the book, but can you give us an idea first? What do we mean by tipping points and how many of them do we know about or how many are we sure. sort of just discovering recently? Yeah. Look, the, the tipping points are, what would I say, they're, they're elements of the Earth's climate system or they concern elements of the Earth's climate system that once they're crossed, there's sort of no going back. So a good example of that is really the Greenland ice sheet, which it simply can't form under current conditions. You know, the world, the world is too warm to allow that ice sheet to form from scratch today, yet it persists because it creates its own little mini climate. And yet as that Greenland ice sheet melts away, we'll reach a point where the rest of the melt is inevitable. You know, and that, that's a tipping point because that is six or seven metres of added depth to the oceans, sea level rise, right? 
So, so that's, that's one example. There are probably half a dozen tipping points which are of immediate concern. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the Greenland ice cap, there's the Arctic ice, which are the, the ice cap across the, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, there is the melting of the permafrost, which is now proceeding at a rapid, a very disturbingly rapid rate. There's the, the destabilizations of the, of the West Antarctic uh, glaciers. And there's the, um, the, the ocean circulation itself is another, another big issue. And um, yet another is the, the fate of the Amazonian rainforests. So we can see them starting to die away through drought. Once that reaches a certain point, it's sort of a self-reinforcing cycle because the forests produce their own rainfall. And once the forests decline to a certain point, there's not enough rainfall to keep the remaining forest alive. Mm. And, and Tim, these are all the individual tipping points we're talking about. How do they interplay with each other, though? Because we're talking about a global system here, which you know, one end of the globe affects the other. How do these tipping points interplay with each other? Well, look, that's a really great question, Shane, and it's one that probably less research has been done on than, than, um, than some of the others. Um, but clearly you can see how one will reinforce the other through the mediation of the atmosphere. So, you know, as, as one of those tipping points is crossed, um, for example, the Amazon rainforest, and we get more CO2 put into the atmosphere, that will accelerate the change. And as sea levels destabilise, we'll see coastal disruption, and again, that will accelerate the change. And, and produce more CO2. So, um, yeah, so altogether they can form a sort of a, a, a cascading snowball, I suppose, that, that presents a real problem. And so really, Shane, the reason I wrote this book is that it's very clear that those tipping points are close. Many mm. of them are really close. So action now to avoid triggering them is worth so much more than any amount of action that you take after that point. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you started putting this book together around the time of the Australian sort of megafires that we, we saw here late in 2019 and through the 20, start of 2020. Seems like a long time ago now with the pandemic uh, under, under our belts. But what, what sort of classification would you give those fires, uh, especially when we're talking about things like tipping points? I mean, this seems to be, and you can talk us through what sort of escalation we're, we're seeing here, but these fires seem to be very different to what had been experienced in the past. Look, they really were. Um, perhaps the best way to try to understand it is just to look at the area that was burned. So those fires were really, they burnt what's called the temperate broadleaf forests of southeastern Australia and eastern Australia. And in any one year up to that point or any one fire season, the maximum area burnt was about 2% of those forests. But during the mega fires, we lost 21% of those forests burned. So that is an order of magnitude jump. So anyone who knows about you know, mathematics mm. and scale understands that is a massive shift in a single year. So this was one of the things that concerned me the most. We seem to have crossed a threshold or a tipping point away from a relatively stable fire regime into a new fire regime, which people are calling the mega fire regime. And, you know, we're seeing that around the world. If it was just Australia, it would be one thing, but it's not. You know, it's in California, it's in Siberia, it's in the Mediterranean. You know, wherever we're seeing this escalation of the scale of bushfire burning, and that has so many implications. That creates its own cascade of consequences, including species extinction loss, 
uh, degradation of landscapes and so forth. Mm. Uh, it's interesting to me, uh, I was just actually up in near Hillsville and Marysville just over this past week weekend and you know, when you head from Marysville up towards Lake Mountain, you can see that tragic area where some of the fires have gone through and of course all the the trees are still there but dead and not repairing in any way, shape or form. Is is this the sort of landscape we're going to be sort of moving into with these sorts of fires? Because they're not they're not the type of fires that allow that reparation to happen quickly, are they? No, they're not. And and certainly overseas experience is that the, the ecosystems start changing once you have a number of these events. Um, you know, in Australia, we've got a very varied landscape. It looks like it's just all eucalypts out there, but actually in ecological terms, it's really quite varied. So those mountain ash forests you were talking about, the, they, they have flourished in what's called the southeast fire flume. And in that area of Australia, you expect a severe fire once every few centuries, you know, that will kill the mature trees, but allow them to drop seed and then the forest grows back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fire regime we've moved into now, you know, those conditions that, that caused the megafires, which were the extreme drought and extreme heat, you know, they used to occur once every few centuries in Australia. We could expect them once every few centuries. Um, with climate change, we're looking at those kind of events now perhaps once every eight years. So, you know, if we get an increased frequency in that fire, clearly the, the metagy doesn't work anymore because the trees don't get to maturity before they're killed by the next fire. Mm. So some ecosystems are going to be severely disrupted by this as the as the new fire regime plays out. Some species will probably be advantaged. So silvertop ash, which is a real specialist in terms of post-fire you know, growth and dealing with really poor soils and difficult fire conditions, that species will probably flourish. But koalas hate it. All the leaf-eating possums hate it. It's sort of like a biological desert. Mm. So, you know... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about the, the changes that will flow from this altered fire regime. Yeah, one of the things I, I found interesting in reading your book was uh, around the effects of climate with winemakers. And I always had it in my head that, you know, some of the winemakers in, you know, the, the northern parts of Victoria or you know, even South Australia, as long as they moved a bit south, perhaps they might be able to you know, moderate uh, where their where their growing was was occurring and so forth to to meet those climatic changes. But you talked about a very different threat in terms of what happened with the bushfires and the winemakers, which I hadn't heard about before. Really, well, uh, well this is one of the biggest issues for for winemakers is a thing called smoke taint, hmm. and smoke taint occurs when you get a lot of smoke in the atmosphere at a critical point in the growing season, just before what the winemakers call veraison, just before they uh, bring in the harvest. And that smoke taint has a real effect on the taste of the wine. And so any, any grapes that are smoke tainted just don't make it through the process. The winemakers throw them out because they taint everything. Um, and so, you know, this has led to huge losses, as you can imagine, last year in, in the grape industry. Um, and, you know, in the season of the megafire, it may be that, you know, when we get those megafires, we, we effectively won't have a harvest over large parts of the country because of smoke taint. Mm. Um, you know, it's one of the issues that... that uh, you know, wine growers are, are struggling with, but you know, others include like sunburn. As we get these intense heat waves, like we're experiencing in Sydney today, um, you know, those um, those heat waves actually sunburn the grapes, and and grape growers have had to devise a sort of a sunscreen for their grapes. So they spray a white clay on the grapes, which obviously adds some cost, and you've got to then wash that off. You know, it's it's just getting more and more difficult. 
mm. uh, for, for wine growers to, to get through to a successful harvest as a result of these climatic shifts. Yeah, and I, and I suppose um, I bring that up as one example, but most of our food industry presumably is you know, uh, going to be in a situation where they're suffering similar difficulties across the board. Well, that's right. And look, you know, this year we've been incredibly fortunate. We've had a bumper crop in, in, in parts of western New South Wales. Um, but that's not been – that's that's an ex- truly exceptional year. You know, if you look at the year before, there was almost zero uh, production over must, much of western New South Wales simply because there was no water. You know, mm. they had we had two years running, an unprecedented two years running of extremely dry conditions. Mm. And and this, this shifting from one extreme to the other seems to be very characteristic of the new climate. Yeah. Now, let's do a bit of a stock take of where we are with regards to the climate at the moment, because we, we hear a lot of these numbers, and I understand for the, for the public in particular, it's difficult. One of the challenges, of course, is that science updates itself. It's one of the great powers of science, but it means these numbers continually change, and at the moment, they're changing very rapidly. So, Tim, where are we at the moment with sort of, I suppose, global temperatures? I know it varies across the globe, but in terms of those increases in global temperatures and our CO2 levels. Sure. Well, let's start with the CO2, Shane. So we're at around about uh, you know, 412 parts per million, and that shifts a little bit every year, every, every season, because um, you know, during the spring when all the plants are growing strongly in the northern hemisphere, CO2 is drawn out of the atmosphere and we draw down a few parts per million, and then during the autumn, all of the leaves fall and they rot and the CO2 goes back into the atmosphere. But at the moment, it's about 412. And we're growing by two to three parts per million per year, which is a very frighteningly high rate. Um, in terms of temperature, what that's done is on global average, we're seeing temperatures that are about 1.1 degrees above what's called the pre-industrial average, so the average temperatures before we started putting burning fossil fuels and putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. Here in Australia, however, average temperatures over Australia have increased by nearly 1.5 degrees Celsius mm. because we're a, we're a dry land mass, you know, middle latitudes, we're warming faster than the global average. Um, so, so that is the situation we're in today. Um, the science is getting much better in terms of telling us how much more CO2 we can put into the atmosphere before we um, trigger or go past one and a half degrees of warming. And you remember that's important politically because the Paris Agreement mm. was premised on the idea we try to keep temperatures at one and a half degrees, and if not that, then two. But it seems that we're very close to having enough CO2 into the atmosphere to inevitably trigger you know, one and a half degrees of warming at some time in the next five, six or so years. And if we continue on to be triggering two degrees of warming um, by about 2030. So this is why the tipping points is, is so key to understand that we are very close to this tipping point moment to, to triggering these tipping points. And we need to start pulling back in a true emergency fashion. Uh, at this moment. Mm. So, so Tim, when, when we talk about these values, I'm just curious because a lot of what I've read sort of indicates that where we are now is a lot worse than where we thought we would be you know, 10, 15 years ago. As you say, when the Paris Agreement and other things were being signed up and written up, you know, and you were involved in many of these earlier, early processes, we, we had an anticipation of where we would be by, you know, we were hearing numbers like 2030, 2050, 2100. And it seems as though we're a fair way ahead of even some of the most concerning predictions that, that scientists had at the time. 
Yeah, look, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, um, you know, we've been on a trajectory of what's called the worst case scenario trajectory since about 2009. And you know, I was pretty deeply involved in that Copenhagen summit mm. trying to get action. And that was really the last time we could have taken action that would have given us a gentle glide path, a relatively gentle glide path to sustainability. But each year after that, we've pumped yet more CO2 into the atmosphere. And uh, we are now, we, we're now looking at disruptive change, sadly, um, if, we, if we want to um, you know, come to terms with this, this shift. So that's one thing. We've been on this worst case scenario trajectory. The second thing that's changed is that people, scientists now understand the way the Earth system works a lot better. So we've been able to calibrate much more carefully and precisely these tipping points and where they are and what's happening. And the news there has been bad because the tipping points have got closer rather than further away. So that's another factor that's been important. But the third has also been this obfuscation of politics and, and the, the way people set targets. Mm. So, you know, we hear about one and a half degrees and so forth, and two degrees, but we also hear about carbon neutrality by 2050, you know. And that idea of carbon neutrality by 2050, if we unpack it, what that means is that on a 30-year average, we'll stay at a particular temperature, which is one and a half or two degrees, you know, somewhere in that range. But over that 30 years, we'll go through that temperature. And then what the politicians are working on is the basis that somehow we'll find some miracle cure for drawdown, mm. even though we haven't invested in it and we're putting no money into it and there's no understanding of, of working it at scale, that somehow we'll miraculously create vast amounts of drawdown. I mean, we're talking here about gigatons. This is a planetary changing stuff, you know, mm. that'll have to occur before 2050 to get that 30-year average back down towards the, the reasonable target. Yeah. So you exceed the target and then using a magical technology no one has yet, we come back down again. So it's important to understand all of that as we kind of contemplate the future and the figures. Yeah, even when I think about that idea of the magical drawdown, let's say, for example, someone managed to, you know, to be frank, pull that out of their butt as, as a possibility that was real in a time frame that, that worked for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, rapid change in either direction presumably would be problematic. Is, is, is that your impression of that? Look, some parts of it, there are some things we can do. I, I've been immensely frustrated with drawdown because I've been pushing the idea of researching drawdown now for, for a decade, ever since the Copenhagen meeting when we had that, you know, catastrophic failure. And, you know, we can grow seaweed in the deep oceans and sequester CO2 in the deep oceans at some sort of scale, um, I think without too much, uh, you know, disequilibrium, creating too much of a problem. It's, it's one of those things that no one's, we're not going to do it overnight anyway. We're not going to get to a gigaton overnight, but we, you, you learn as you go. So you can imagine planting seaweed in the ocean and letting the seaweed sink into the deep ocean. And that's a natural process. We know a lot of seaweed gets into the deep ocean anyway, where the carbon is sequestered. Mm -hmm. So we're just accelerating a natural process. Um, and you think, well, what will that do to the deep oceans? I mean, that's a very fair question and we need to research that. But in terms of scale, it's really important to understand that if we took half of the CO2 that's in the atmosphere today, so imagine taking a 200 parts per million out of the 412 and sunk it into the deep ocean, do you know how much we'd increase the concentration of CO2 in the deep ocean? 2%, mm. right? Because the deep ocean is so much bigger than the atmosphere, mm. right? So these sort of opportunities are there for us, but we have done nothing in terms of preparing ourselves for the scale of drawdown that's going to be required 
from 2030 onwards. And we're running out of time to do that because like all of these things, it's like building a wind turbine industry. It takes decades to go from the concept to a world scale, you know. So we've got yeah. to start now thinking about these things. Yeah. Tim, I, I hesitate to ask this question, but I think it's important to, to state it cleanly during the interview. And as our regular listeners will know, I'm very you know pushy on the idea that science isn't something that you believe in. It is something that simply is, like mathematics is. Um, and this idea that, you know, some people believe in climate change and some people do is, to me, a fallacy. You know, we, we really just have to accept the fact that science is and it evolves and that's the way life is. Um, but question for you around that, what percentage of these shifts in t- CO2 level are attributed now carefully to to humans? I mean, I, I don't want to say 100% because I actually personally don't know, but I, I assume that it's a very, very high value, if not above that. Yeah, look, it's, um, you know, Michael Mann has made a very good argument. He's, Michael is one of the great you know, climate scientists of our planet has made a careful argument that, in fact, it's about 110%. Mm. So the reason he puts it at 110% is that if you track what was happening with the Earth system naturally um, prior to the Industrial Revolution and, and thereafter, you can see that we're on a, a, a decline, as the as you'd expect from the Milankovitch cycles. Temperature was decreasing. So we had to erase that decrease, which is 10%, and mm. then add 100% of the warming that we've caused today on top of that. And I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of, of, of the human impact. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's an incredible achievement of geoengineering for us to have done in such a short space of time, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's pla- the history of the planet has never seen anything like it. Hmm. In terms of speed and scale, this is unique. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. that you know, we, are, we are gods, really, in terms of the planetary system. We can do things that, that have just been unthinkable up to this time. Yeah. Now, um, I, I want to remind people that they can actually watch this interview via Triple R's YouTube and Facebook channels, and you can get to those links via the website. This is one of those rare moments where, uh, I'm sorry to say it, folks, but you can actually watch Dr. Shane doing his work on Triple R as well as hearing him. Uh, Tim's a much more... Uh, you know, handsome looking man than, than I am. But uh, if you want to see what happens behind I the screen. I wouldn't say that, Shane. We've both, the... <laughs> We've both got the same hairstyle. <laughs> uh, if you want to see what's happening behind the scenes, folks, you can uh, watch this interview live at the moment. And of course, it'll all be available afterwards if you happen to miss it. Tim, um, before we go to a, a bit of a break, I, I wanted to just sort of get some clarity from you on what sort of things are happening around Australia in terms of both the state and federal levels in, and I'm going to usually use the word action because I know it is probably woefully inadequate. But what sort of you know good is there? Some good stuff going on that we should be cheering on at the moment around around the country. Look, there's a lot of good stuff going on, Shane, and I, it's, it's a long discussion. So perhaps we can come back to that mm. one after after the break. But you know, in brief, you know, uh, councils around Australia are doing fantastic things. You know, urged on by the Cities Power Partnership and and other organisations that are pushing for reductions in emissions. State governments are doing amazing things, whether they're Liberal or, or Labor. We've, you know, the, st- the Liberal government in South Australia is pushing on with the work done by the, you know, initially by the Labor government in terms of clean energy. So that state is now leading the nation. ACT has reached carbon neutrality already mm. under a Labor government. Tasmania's got a target of, I think, 300% renewable energy because they want to be a, an energy exporter under a Liberal government. So the states are doing great things. Uh, it's the federal government that's holding us up. And within the conservative federal government, there's probably only about 25 MPs 
who are stymieing progress. And as Malcolm Turnbull, our ex-Prime Minister, said, these people are acting like terrorists. They're threatening to blow the place up if they don't get their way. Mm. And so that's where the blockage is. And, you know, the, the election of people like Zali Stegall, the independent that, that, that replaced Tony Abbott, has been a big thing. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, and, and that her bill, the climate bill that, that Zali has put forward, is just such a key element in terms of Australia's response to the climate problem. But we have to deal with this as an emergency. This is the moment now for action. Yeah. In terms of the individual states, uh, like obviously there's a, there's a federal issue there. But if I think about something like coal exports, for example, I mean, these are, these are dug up. They come from the individual states. The states do well out of these exports. Uh, are we moving away from that at a state level or at a federal level? Or is that just still business as usual? Well, it, there's been some significant changes. You know, the Land and Environment Court in New South Wales has has basically ruled against the development of some coal mm. uh, coal areas, which is a which is an important thing for for environmental reasons and very good reasons, water protection and so forth, as well as the climate impacts of of those mines. Um, so it's, that's a bit of a patchy patchy picture. But what we are doing now is we're seeing a very emphatic move away from fossil fuel based energies into clean energy production and generation. Mm. Things are a bit slow with transport. We've seen some move towards electric vehicles, but it's going to take a very widespread structural change to the tax basis and things like um, fringe benefits tax uh, to move that forward. Um, But, you know, Shane, if I could just say, what we need to be doing is cutting emissions by about 8% per year, year on year out to 2030, if we want to give ourselves the best chance of doing this. And the, the way of doing that with minimum pain is getting a federal framework in place. Mm. So cut yeah. the emissions, make sure we've got the capacity to deal with all the casualties we've already created, the climate <laughs> casualties from the Great Barrier Reef through to the victims of bushfires, and then let's start searching for the vaccine. And the vaccine is drawdown at yeah. scale. And like the search for a COVID vaccine, it's going, to be, it's going to be expensive, it's going to take a long time, and the results will be uncertain. But we know we have to do it yeah. if we want to get back to a healthy planet. Yeah. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on. Three uh, Triple R FM, and we are doing a live broadcast with Tim Flannery, who is a climate champion. If uh, you haven't heard him before, we interviewed him a few years back regarding his book Atmosphere of Hope. He has a new book out now called The Climate Cure, and boy, do we need one! Uh, off the back, uh, I think this book is off the back of what we've managed to do here with COVID. Tim, uh, one of the things I thought would be interesting to to dive into now is this issue of the fossil fuel companies and just how they seem to have an incredible stranglehold on our societies. I mean, we know they're dirty. We know the damage they do. We know the health impacts of local communities from these companies. We know that without taxpayers' subsidies, they'd probably all be long gone. What is giving them this stranglehold that we just can't seem to break free of? Well, you know, they've been historically Australia's been a resource economy, and you know, even in the days of Governor Philip, you know, the the first fleet, among Governor Philip's instructions was a was a note to keep your eye open for coal deposits. You know, this was kind of important going right back, um, and over over the years that 
you know, the wealth that's been created through the resource economy has equated to political influence. So structures have been built which, or practices have been laid down which have allowed the resource economy to, to basically dictate policy. You know? So um, often the practice is that you know, a, lobby, a lobby group will, um, someone who works for a resource company lobby group will go and work for a minister. They might then write the legislation that relates to fossil fuels and how they're extracted. And then they'll go back out and they'll go and take a job back in the, in the industry. And the same for the politicians. I mean, we've had a number of ministers uh, for resources at the federal level who've, you know, quit in federal politics and then taken up a role on a board, you know, mm. chairman of a board or taken up CEO of a, you know, a lobby group or whatever. And that includes people like Ian McFarlane, you know, recently, um, Martin Ferguson, you know, from the other side of politics. And we've got some politicians who, of course, in totally unashamed about it, Clive Palmer, you know, he owns coal assets and yet there he is in the, in the parliament. So, you know, it's... um. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like got to be a very unseemly sort of nexus between the money of the fossil fuel industry and political power, sadly. Mm. And in in terms of coal as a product, is it still economically viable if you take out the taxpayer subsidies, or is it or is it like no longer viable as an energy source? I mean, I know it's very dense as an energy source, but where does it sit? Yeah, well, look. It, let, let's we've got to unpick this because coal mm. is quite a it's quite a wide has a variety of applications and there's a variety of quality um, for the coal. So if we take metallurgical coal, for example, at the moment, which is used to make steel, that is still profitable because using making steel by using the alternative such as such as hydrogen are still in the very infant days. But in years to come, um, that that will become less and less competitive as hydrogen, which is a better reductant for steel. So a reductant takes the oxygen and the impurities yep. out of the, the steel. Um, you know, once hydrogen becomes a, a um, once it's developed further, metallurgical coal will become less profitable. In terms of you using coal to create energy, um, it's still kind of profitable in the Australian market in parts, but, you know, that market is not really a free market. It's, it's hedged around by rules and regulations and everything else that, that in, influences price. Um, so, you know, there's a few old coal-fired power plants that, you know, there's one famous one in New South Wales that was bought for a million dollars and, you know, it's produced hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. Um, that's all paid up, you know. It's all, everything's paid for, but presumably doesn't have a lot of debt, and they can just keep generating, you know, uh, a, profits through that um so so look it, it varies but what we see the general trend we see through time is that coal is being phased out of these markets it's not being phased out fast enough i think we need a, a more proactive regulatory response to start shutting those things down to make our eight percent emissions reduction target per year and that is the, the emergency response mm. um in terms of gas it's a little bit more equivocal but um Gas as well, we need to start looking at phasing out as quickly as we can. Yeah. In fact, uh, that's where I want to go now and talk to you a bit about various, and I think we'll be careful here and talk types of gases. So the, the type that is predominantly referred to as natural gas, which is a weird name to me. It's kind of like calling something like natural arsenic. Um, but that's we're right. talking- well, it's natural. It's natural. <laughs> comes out of the ground. Um, primarily methane, as I understand it, with a few other bits and pieces thrown in. Um, yeah. well, I think we'll get onto hydrogen in a minute, but there seems to be a big push at the moment towards 
you know, this whole idea of revitalizing our economy through the use of natural gas. I mean, this seems to me to be not quite as bad as coal, but it's kind of still a poison that we don't want to drink. Yeah, look, you know, opinions are divided about how bad it is relative to coal. But, you know, the key point is we are now entering the climate emergency and every every source of emissions needs to be looked at and reduced by 8% per year and not grown. Mm. What, the, what the gas industry is trying to do is to grow, right? And they want to use taxpayers' money to, to do that. So there's been talk of an east-west pipeline, for example, to carry gas from Western Australia into the eastern states. Can you imagine if we built a transmission line instead and we had solar farms in Western Australia producing electricity that could be sold into the Sydney market at 10 o'clock at night when there's no sun mm. on the East Coast, um, but you're getting still sun in Western Australia. Imagine how much more valuable that would be. Yeah. So clean energy source, massively scalable. We could do East-West interconnectors, could totally change things. So you know the argument really is a pretty clear one that we've got to stop focusing on gas. It's part of the problem and start focusing on those technologies that allow us to reduce emissions 8% year on year out to 2030. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the other gas, which I think is, is more of interest to me, and that is hydrogen. Um, talk us through this, because my understanding is in the production of hydrogen, we can go a couple of ways, one being, let's call it clean hydrogen, and one being dirty hydrogen. Talk us through those two and the differences. That's right. Yeah, well... Look, most of the hydrogen that's produced in the world today is produced through dirty hydrogen. It's, it's produced through either reforming natural gas or from things like brown coal. So if you look at the, the figures for natural gas, you know, for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce, you produce 8 to 12 kilograms of, of uh, CO2. Mm. Because what you're doing is breaking apart that natural gas and letting the CO2 get into the atmosphere and taking the hydrogen for whatever purposes. When you get to um, using brown coal for those purposes, it's more like you know 80 to 100 kilograms of, of, of CO2 for every kilogram of, of hydrogen you produce. You know, so that's brown hydrogen. That's dirty, dirty stuff. Yep. Clean hydrogen can be produced by taking wind or solar energy, electricity, and running an electric current through water, which then takes the H2O and takes the H and separates it from the 2O, you know, and then we get clean hydrogen. And that hydrogen is really what's called an energy carrier, right? So it it carries that energy. And we can use that hydrogen for any number of purposes. It's it's extraordinarily versatile product. So you can use it to to, uh, for all of the things you'd use natural gas for, you know, Mm -hmm. for for heat sources and so forth. But you can also use it to produce – um, uh, fertilizers, nitrogenous fertilizers. You can use it to produce ammonia and transport it as, as ammonia. Um, you can use it to make plastics. You can use it to make all of the products that the old wood chemists used, you know. So you take CO2 mm. and that hydrogen, you can make lots and lots of interesting things. You can make e-fuels to run our jet aircraft on. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole new frontier, the hydrogen economy. And if we can just shift it from brown hydrogen to, to blue-green hydrogen, uh, we will have done a great thing. So let me get this straight. So if, if there was a country on earth that had incredible levels of solar generating capability, if it was to build it, and incredible levels of not, you know, insignificant wind capability, and, and that country was spread over multiple time zones so that the day-night cycle could be used to your advantage, and then you had an unlimited source of, of water essentially surrounding you because you're an island nation, 
you know, this would be something where if you were running that country, you might think hydrogen, clean hydrogen is a smart way to go and we should be building the infrastructure, yeah? Yeah. Well, you might think, yeah, that's right, let's do all of that. But then let's have a look at our mineral exports. So we export a lot of alumina, which mm. is partially refined aluminium. And what do you need to, to refine aluminium properly? Electricity. So we've got all of that hydrogen, all that clean electricity. We could be sending out fully refined aluminium. Iron ore. Now, what do we need to make iron ore into steel? You need a reductant. So the best reductant known to mankind is hydrogen. You'd just say, okay, why would we be sending raw iron ore out at very low prices when we could be sending out fully finished steel product, mm. right? Um, fertilisers, the same. We, we import a vast amount of fertilisers into this country. Why, wouldn't be, why shouldn't we be making our own and exporting it to the world? Natural gas exports. Why are we persisting with a fossil fuel that's ever more on the nose when we could be exporting hydrogen? What about um, fueling transport? Like we could be the fuel production transport hub for hydrogen uh, for shipping, which is it's an ideal it's an ideal fuel for shipping, but also the global production hub for e-fuels for aircraft. We could be the Singapore of the world in terms mm. of producing e-fuels for the future aircraft fleet. We know e-fuels they're brilliant. They they, they, they don't have any of the pollutants in them, such as sulphur, that traditional fuels have. They're very clean. Um, they start as, as water and, 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 you know, oxygen, and they go back to water <laughs> at the end of the fuel cycle when they're, when they're powering that jet. So, um, you know, when you think about what Australia could do, we, we are just in such a position of privilege, and yet we've got this government and industry that's looking backwards are turning their face resolutely away, many of them, from mm. the opportunities of the future to cling to a dying past. Yeah. And I just, that's just wrong. You know? Yeah, it seems to me, even if you're the most, uh, you know, economy-only, money-only, you know, right-wing, you know, nut job. frankly, uh, there's no better way, it seems, to make an absolute bucket load of money than to build a hydrogen economy where the world is screaming out for these opportunities and we have them en masse. I mean, this will show my age, but I remember years ago thinking we shouldn't be shipping dirt overseas. We should be, should be shipping VCRs. You know, we should be doing this stuff. We're a smart country yeah. doing this stuff here. But instead, Sorry. we ship dirt and we get back solar panels. You know, this tends to be our, our model, which yeah. is, you know, I, I realize there's a short-term quick buck there. But the actual add-on value is very low by comparison to what we could be doing if we moved into this in the right way. Um, Tim, Let's let's talk a bit about climate um, climate change and, and the idea of carbon capture because I know this is a this is a tricky discussion because some people are very against you know pushing into carbon capture and storage because I suppose the argument against it is the idea that if it, if you know the fossil fuel companies will see this as a a kind of a free pass to get out of the bad activities they're doing but I mean what are your thoughts on carbon capture and storage at this point? Well, look, it, the kind of carbon capture and storage that industry's been talking about for the last few decades is a process whereby we burn coal, for example, or gas to generate electricity, and we then capture the CO2 that, that results from the combustion mm. and put it back in the ground. And when you think about that, what's that doing? Is it giving you better electricity? No. it's not. A, all it's doing is adding cost, right? Yeah. So we've already got a very expensive way of generating electricity that we're saying, hey, let's add a bit of cost to it and to make it cleaner instead of buying a solar panel or yeah. a wind turbine or whatever, right? So that's a dead end. It is conclusively shown to be a dead end. 
when it comes to natural gas extraction, you know, Australian natural gas is very high in CO2 content. And that's because it's really old, old gas. And gas, methane degrades to CO2 over time. So in some of our central Australian wells, for example, they're 90% CO2 and 10% natural gas, hmm. right? So and at the moment, all that CO2 is just vented to the atmosphere. So the industry's argued, oh, well, maybe we should take that and pump it back down, separate the CO2 from the gas and pump it back down and put it underground. That's okay within the, within the cost profile as long as uh, natural gas can remain competitive doing that. But again, they'd lose it out because the renewables are just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So again, that looks to me like a bit of a dead end. Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the other niche opportunities, so for example, there is the opportunity to to capture CO2 using what's called direct air capture. So this is using a resin. And this can be done in places, uh, well, it can be done all around the world, but currently being trialled in, in Iceland, where you capture that CO2 and then pump it down into those rather special rocks around Iceland. That What happens down there is that there's chemical reactions occur. So the CO2 you pump in eventually becomes a solid, becomes a, a rock itself, and it's locked in there forever. So if you can do that for $50 a, 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 a tonne or you know $100 a tonne, maybe that's a carbon price that's worth paying to get some CO2 out of the air. So at that end of the spectrum, we're getting into really drawdown, mm. you know, the yeah. whole drawdown thing. Mm. And we have to weigh that up against, say, the cost of growing seaweed in our oceans. What, what is the most cost-effective way of getting the CO2 out of the air? So that whole idea of carbon capture and storage is, a great, again, a great complex of, of mm. things that need to be teased apart a bit and yeah. thought about separately. And presumably uh, some of the pushes we hear about just planting a few trees is not going to cut it. Not planting a few trees. I mean, you know, David Attenborough was on the money when he said what we need to do is rewild our planet mm. because our planet is what's kept the atmosphere in, in the state it was in. That's, what, that's what's created the balance of gases in the atmosphere. And if we protect our forests and regrow our forests at the global scale and protect our oceans, sure, we can have an impact of yeah. drawing CO2 down. But it needs to be it needs to be at that scale. It can't just be planting a few trees or even a billion trees here or there. Yeah. It's got to be a global effort yeah. to start letting the earth regenerate and play its role in, in drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Now, uh, Tim, when I spoke to you a few years ago, I never thought we'd actually get to this point in our discussions. But uh, one of the things that I noticed a word in your book, which I wasn't expecting to see, was the idea of geoengineering. And this, to me, means we've gotten to this point of, of extreme requirements. And can you give us some ideas of what sort of geoengineering, you know, beyond our geoengineering with the planet that's stuffing things up, what types of geoengineering might we consider to sort of pull back from this precipice a little bit? Sure. Well, look, the reason I got to that point, Shane, in writing this book was that we are now at a moment of crisis. And if you think back to the COVID crisis, do you remember in March – this year, number of cases in Australia was doubling every four days. None of us could see it. None of us knew anyone who had COVID, you know, because it was still low level. But the government knew that it needed to act then or it would future action could well be ineffective because the genie would be out of the bottle. Mm. So that's, that's where we are with climate change now. We're at that moment where in these next few years we need to act, otherwise the genie will get out of the bottle. So that's why I've come with some reluctance to talk about things like geoengineering because... Um, you know, I can see that we may be slow to act and we may need some sort of emergency measure to to tide us through until we get our act together to deal with this problem. 
So the sort of geoengineering things that are, that are talked about and that are reasonably well researched include the idea of um, putting sulfur, for example, uh, into the atmosphere. So, you know, jet fuel already contains sulfur. We can up that amount of sulfur. We can, we can use it even on certain flights. We could use it on flights over the Arctic to try to uh, protect the Arctic ice. Um, is that going to work? We don't know. What are the consequences of that going to be? We don't know. Um, you know, all of the modelling that's been done so far on sulphur in the atmosphere is done based on uh, the sulphur that comes out of volcanoes, not the sulphur that you'd add to jet fuel. Mm. So we need critically to understand this. We know it will work, by the way. We know that that sulphur will cool our planet. CO2 concentrations will continue to rise, but the planet will remain relatively cool. Uh, so we know that works. We know that it's reversible in that, you know, if you stop putting it in a few weeks later, the sulphur's out of the atmosphere and, and you're back on your normal trajectory. Um, you know, there are other options people are talking about, such as cloud brightening, to just to reflect more sunlight. And people are talking about doing this over the Arctic again, just to extend a lifeline to the Arctic ice. People are also talking about doing it uh, on the Great Barrier Reef to try to give the Great Barrier Reef a bit more, uh, a bit of help. Whether that'll work or not is open to question because, you know, a lot of the the barrier reef problems come from these great submarine heat waves that are generated way out into the Pacific and heat water to a great depth and come in and just sit against the reef and kill it, you know. Mm. So we shall have to see uh, where we go with this. But I think that the chances are that we'll be turning increasingly to geoengineering simply because our politicians have failed us. Yeah. And there are real consequences to that failure. Not yeah. all of our politicians, but the critical ones at the federal level in Australia have failed us. And so it'll be on their watch that we will turn perhaps to these more desperate measures. Mm. Tim, it's it's an interesting time. And I, I know this is part of the reason why you put the book out when you did and why it has, of course, the, the title, The Climate Cure. But we have seen an unprecedented situation here in Australia in particular where for a brief moment, and, you know, it lasted long enough, I feel, but earlier in the year there was a time back in Feb, March, where both our federal and state governments, regardless of their political leanings, seemed to be, and, and I think this has paid off, listening to scientists and doing exactly what needed to be done to, to stem the, the COVID um, pandemic. And, you know, despite the issues in Melbourne and so forth, ultimately Australia has done incredibly well. Um, I, I get, you know, if you look at countries like Vietnam with four times our population, you know, they've done equally well, extraordinary for a country, especially with, um, you know, the, the, the amount of money that country has compared to Australia, like they've done extraordinarily well. But we managed to bring it together for a period. Do, I mean, how do you think this plays out now for climate, given at least at the moment, and I worry this won't last, but at least at the moment, I think our public has a bigger expectation on the government really listening to scientists as it has probably never done before. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Look, that's, that's so true, Shane. It's the one thing that's given me hope. You know, I was in uh, Canberra in January. I met our chief medical officer. I heard his concern. Mm. And I knew he was talking to the Prime Minister. And, you know, within a month of, of that meeting or less, we'd stopped flights from China. Enormous economic consequences. Can you imagine stopping coal exports to China? Mm. Or we stopped flights to China, right, to stop the COVID. And then 12 days before the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, Australia had declared a pandemic. So we were well ahead of the ball. And then on about the 13th of March, we introduced that lockdown that had a big impact on, on our economy. 
So all of that was done by a Conservative government, putting the nation's security first. And that's exactly what we need to do with climate change. But on top of that, we invented a new form of government, governance. This idea of the premiers and the prime minister working together in an emergency to create the outcomes that are necessary. So if we use that model and applied it to climate change, we could beat this problem. We could easily make the 8% reduction per year that's required after 2030. We could be planning the emergency response to, to make sure we had the capacity in our hospitals and in our mm. emergency services units and in, you know, for the Great Barrier Reef that would help us protect those assets. And we could begin the search for a vaccine. You know, we could be investing in geoengineering, in a new seaweed industry, in the use of silicate rocks, which our mining industry has great expertise in here in Australia. We could be doing all of that, but we're not because there's a small group of people who want to look backwards and not forwards. Um, and, I, it, you know, the opportunity is there. We need to grasp it. And the way we can force the politics with that is to oppose those 25 sceptics in government, people like Craig Kelly and others. You know, we, we, we moved Tony Abbott on in Moringa. Zali Steggles introduced the climate bill. If we had just two more Zalis, this would be a minority government dependent upon, um, you know, people mm. concerned about climate. So it's in our hands. And this is the moment to act. It's not like we can leave this to next year or the year after. I know there's not an election this year, but we need to make people know that they are under challenge and under scrutiny. Yeah, and that the the the, the this, this, they are not reflecting society's views in this area. Yeah, it, it's it seems to me that with with COVID, we we really managed to see some examples, especially Italy in particular, at the time of just how bad this could get if we didn't act appropriately. Why do you think it is that something like the Australian bushfires over the last season didn't have a similar catalyzing effect? I mean, I I know many of the threats seem more long-term, but that was one on our doorstep that actually, you know, did an incredible amount of economic damage, livestock, our our wilderness, our life, you know, lives lost and so forth. How How do you sort of compare that to what happened with COVID? Well, look, I think it did have an impact. I think that, you know, we saw well, the cost of those bushfires are between one and, and, and you know, $300 billion by mm-hmm. some of the, you know, the banks and others who study this sort of stuff. Um, you know, we know we lost 450 people to smoke inhalation, to, to, to asphyxiation and other mm-hmm. lung troubles with smoke. We lost 33 to the flames. We, you know, 3,000 people don't have a home anymore and they haven't been built between now and when those homes were lost. Yeah. It's going to take years of recovery. So, and we know that 80% of Australians are deeply concerned about climate change, right? So it it did have an impact. What it hasn't done is shift those 25 ideologues in our federal parliament or shifted them slowly. We no longer have Barnaby Joyce in cabinet. We no longer have Matt Canavan in cabinet. We no longer have Joel Fitzgibbon in the the shadow cabinet. So they're all positive trends, right? Mm. But they still hold enough power, those groups, to hold us back from acting. Yeah. And the first step that we need any federal government in Australia to do is recognise that this is a genuine emergency, just as they did with COVID. Yep. And that's not going to happen while those people are there. We need to put them on notice that this is a new era and their voice is not welcome in this new era. Yeah. I think, Tim, uh, I, I think to things like the um, you know, the FBI's most wanted list, which everyone who's ever watched uh, American TV crime show will be aware of, why don't we do the same with this group in Parliament? Let's put their faces and names out there in, in a way that we can spread very, very broadly across social media and other channels and until they change their behavior they stay on that list as you said these are these are borderline terrorists in terms of the way they're they're acting with regards to our country the things that they're preventing the 
the economic damage long term that they're causing. I mean, isn't it time, you know, when you say that number, I can name a few, but I cannot name them all. And I suspect many of our listeners would be in a similar boat to me on that front. Is it time we really expose them to put that pressure on of, of these people? I mean, maybe they won't care, but at least we'll know who they are. Well, it is time to expose them, but it's also time to organise against them. And we're seeing that now, for example, in, in Craig Kelly's electorate, mm-hmm. a thousand people of goodwill have got together to say it's time to move on and we're going to be supporting another candidate at the next election. You know, we had a thousand volunteers in Warringah supporting Zali and there's yep. only a hundred thousand people in the electorate. Yep. So, you know, yeah. we, we know we can do this. We can we can move those people on. And you you don't need to wait to the next election. You can neutralize their power in the current parliament by showing the strength of reaction against them and the likelihood that they will be voted out. Yeah. So we need to and they're on both sides of politics, you know, but particularly those in the government today, because the government's responsible. We need to have the focus there. We need to start shifting the thinking around that to promoting the great liberals that are out there, people like Matt Keane and others who are doing a brilliant job yep. to make sure that we shift that dialogue. Yeah, and and remove the political aspect of, of climate and science. Science is not a political thing. As I say, it's not a belief no. system. It's something that just is. Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again. I'm going to hold up your book for those who are watching us online to see. It's called The Climate Cure, folks. It's available now, I'm assuming, Tim, everywhere. Hopefully, yeah, uh, I easy hope so. to get. Um, thank you so much for, for chatting to us about this critical issue. No doubt we will talk again. Um, please don't read th- write three books between now and when I get to interview you again. We'll, uh, let's, let's talk <laughs> again shame. before that happens because you rip them out of the rate of knots. Um, but look, great having a chat to you. Keep up the good work and we'll speak again at some stage. Thank you so much. Thanks Great. so much, Lovely to be with you, Shane. Thank you. Folks, uh, just a few important thank yous with regards to that interview because you've been listening to Professor Tim Flannery in conversation with me here, Dr. Shane, on Einstein and GoGo Live on Triple R. Thanks to everyone who's been listening or been watching. We really appreciate your support. Um, Tim Flannery via the Triple R website and social media pages. You can see this if you've missed it. It will be there and available for you. Um, so get online and have a look and um, follow us on Twitter if you can. Uh, we would very much appreciate that a big thank you from me too to the team from triple r especially uh bez dan elizabeth and and of course our program uh managers and our station manager they've been fantastic in support of putting this together i'm dr shane remember that science is everywhere and as i said in that interview science is not a belief system folks it just is and we have to stop uh allowing people to refer to it inappropriately thanks so much for listening today we'll be back with more science again next week until then have a great Sunday and enjoy eat it. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.